Turn in your Bible, please, to Jeremiah chapter 36. Jeremiah chapter 36. We have been in the book of Jeremiah all month during January. This is the last of January, though I'm not sure it will be the last of Jeremiah. There are two divisions of the prophets in the Old Testament, the major prophets and the minor prophets. The major prophets are called major not because they're more important than the minor prophets, but because their volume is larger. They preached longer, and they, their books were longer. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, those are the major prophets. And then the minor prophets are called the Book of the Twelve. These prophets fit into the history of the Hebrew people. We have been studying in Sunday school the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes right at the end of the Old Testament. And it parallels the time of Malachi. If you were doing a chronological arrangement, Nehemiah would be at the end of the Old Testament. The prophets, on the other hand, would be interspersed with the history. And the book of Jeremiah belongs to that section of Israel's history just before the fall of Jerusalem. And for 40 years, Jeremiah preached, repent, but there was no repentance. Instead, they rejected him. And they hated the Word of God. And they did everything possible to stop God's Word. We'll see a little bit about that this morning in Jeremiah chapter 36. May we pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for the book of God that is life-giving in its power and effectiveness. We pray that just now we will feed on Thy Word and it will become precious to our hearts. May some who have never been saved come to Jesus today. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Beginning in Jeremiah 36, verse 17, Baruch was the amanuensis or the secretary of Jeremiah. Now, he was the scribe who wrote what Jeremiah got from God. This is an illustration of how the Bible was written. Sometimes we wonder, how was the Bible written? This is an illustration of it in this section we have today. And they asked Baruch, saying, Tell us, how, did thou write, how didst thou write all these words at his mouth? Then Baruch answered them, He pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Then said the princes unto Baruch, Go hide thou and Jeremiah, and let no man know where thou art. And they went into the king, into the court, but they laid up the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the scribe, and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So the king sent Jehuda to fetch the scroll, and he took it out of Elishama, the scribe's chamber, and Jehuda read it in the hearing of the king. 
and in the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire in the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehuda had read three or four columns, he cut it with a penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was at the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor tore their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. Nevertheless, Elnathan and Deliah and Gamariah had made intercession to the king that he would not burn the scroll, but he would not hear them. But the king commanded Jehuamiel, the son of Hamalak, and Seriah, the son of Azrael, Azrael, and Shalmiah, the son of Abdil, to take Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet, but the Lord hid them. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the scroll. And the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another scroll, and write in it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim the king of Judah hath burned. And thou shalt say to Jehoiakim king of Judah, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast burned this scroll, saying, Why hast thou written in it? saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land, and shall cause to cease in it man and beast. Therefore thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the day to the heat, and in the night to the frost. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity. And I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the men of Judah all the evil that I have pronounced against them. But they hearkened not. Then took Jeremiah another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote in it from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim king of Judah had burned in the fire. And there were added besides unto them many like words." Now we have seen in these few verses an attempt to destroy the Word of God. The Word of God was originally written on scrolls, and the scroll that was burned in the hearth was the book that Jeremiah had written, and had it not been rewritten, we would have no Jeremiah. There wouldn't be any book of Jeremiah. This was one of the illustrations of the attempt to destroy the Word of God. Illustrations like that could be repeated again and again and again, not only in Bible times, but in times since the Bible. The Bible contains 3,566,480 letters, or 7,733,746 7, words. All those words were given by the Lord. I believe in the verbally inspired Word of God. God did not just breathe some thoughts. He breathed His Word 
upon Moses, upon Isaiah, upon Jeremiah. And we could take book after book and show illustrations of how God wrote the book. What I have given to you this morning is just one little flower from the garden of God that reminds us of the indestructibleness of the Word of God, the eternal Word of God. Now Jeremiah had a time in his life when he got discouraged. He had preached the Word and preached the Word and no one would listen. Sometimes you as soul winners or as teachers or as people who have stood true to the Word of God have stood for God's Word and nobody would listen. Sometimes they've made fun of you. They may have scoffed at you. They may have called you a Bible-believing or a Bible-toting people. And sometimes they laugh at you. They have not done anything to you that they did not do to the prophets. As a matter of fact, when Jesus came to Jerusalem, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stonest the prophets. At another time, he said, it is not fitting that a person should die outside of the city of Jerusalem because that's the city that stones all the prophets. And it was God's city, God's holy people, God's holy nation. The people who stand for God in this age will suffer persecution. The Bible teaches that. Now, that doesn't mean we need to be paranoid and look all around us and say, I think somebody's after me, somebody's hunting me, or think that behind every bush there's some enemy. It just simply means that we need to remind ourselves that as long as we live in a world that hates God, a world whose standards are not God's standards, that when you stand true to the Word of God, everybody will not like you. Jeremiah experienced that. They ridiculed him. They lambasted him. They put him in the miry clay. They set him up in dungeons. They ignored the Word. And he came right to God and said, God, I don't understand this. You gave me the Word. And I thought the people's hearts would be hungry to hear it. And God had to remind him again and again that the Word was given as a witness that not everybody would believe the Word. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7, when Jeremiah was down in the dumps, have you ever been blue? You ever been discouraged? You ever got down in the dumps and you had to reach up to touch bottom? Well, that's where Jeremiah was. And he was way down one day. And he said something. I don't know whether he meant it or not. I guess he meant it at the time. And sometimes we've said things we mean at the time, but when we look at the whole thing, we know that we acted or spoke hastily. Jeremiah said in chapter 20, verse 7, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Now what he means, he doesn't mean that the Lord is a sinner and has, has deceived him. He means, Lord, you didn't tell me that I was going to have all this trouble. You didn't tell me it would be this tough. You didn't tell me that standing for you would cause all this ridicule and all of this torture and all this problem. I didn't bargain for all of that. And we need to remind ourselves that the will of God is always bigger than we bargain for. O oh Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. 
Thou art stronger than I and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spoke, I cried, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. I'm going to quit. <laughs> They're going to quit. That's what he was saying. Don't just going to quit. I'll throw in the towel. I didn't bargain for all this toughness. I'm just going to quit. Why did Jeremiah not quit? Read the next sentence. It wasn't because somebody, some Sunday school teacher came and begged him not to quit. It wasn't because the pastor came and made a call in the home and said, now please don't quit. You know, we couldn't get along without you. Now that may be good, but that's not the reason Jeremiah didn't quit. It wasn't because somebody came along and said, well, bless your little heart. I know you've had a tough time, and I just tell you, you've had an awful time, and I don't blame you for quitting, but if you just hang on a little bit longer, everything will get a little bit brighter. It wasn't like that at all. God said, Jeremiah, it's going to get worse. <laughs> now, why did Jeremiah not quit? Look in verse 9. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not quit. I couldn't quit. Why? Because of God's Word in my heart. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. And in these next few moments, I want to speak to you this morning about the eternal Word of God and its power to help us through all kinds of circumstances and situations. First of all, the Word of God was in my bones, Jeremiah said. Now, you'd expect him to say it was in my heart. But in order to understand that a little bit better, you have to understand Hebrews 4.12, which says the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow. It gets right down there in the marrow. Where's the marrow? In the bone. And Jeremiah said, that's where the Word was in me that caused me not to quit. The Word was in my bones like a fire shut up. It had changed my very attitude. It had changed everything about me. It was the foundation upon which I was standing. We sang a while ago, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? And Jeremiah said, The word was down in my bones. In Jeremiah 5, 14, is not my word like a, in Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like, a, like a, a fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? And in Jeremiah 4, 5, 14, the word of God is like a devouring flame. In Ezekiel 36, uh, 37, 7, it is like a life-giving force. In Romans 1.16, it is called a saving power. In Ephesians 6.17, it is likened unto a defensive weapon. Great estimates have been given concerning the eternal, the wonderful Word of God. Abraham Lincoln said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God ever gave man. All good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. 
Gladstone said, I've known 95 of the world's greatest men in my time, and of these, 87 were followers of the Bible. The Bible is stamped with a specialty of origin, and an immeasurable distance separates it from all its competitors. George Washington said, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Napoleon said, the Bible is no mere book, but a living creature with a power that conquers all that oppose it. Daniel Webster said, if we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering and to prosper. But if we and our posterity neglect its instructions and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. Well, how did the Bible come to us? The Bible, the wonderful Word of God, was given to us not in the ordinary theory, like Tennyson and Shakespeare and Browning, not in the fractional theory, parts are inspired and other parts are not, not in the degree theory that says some is more inspired than others, not in the dynamic theory that says the thoughts are inspired but the words are man's words, not in the moral theory that simply says the moral and spiritual teachings are inspired but the historical content is not, and not even in the mechanical theory that says the Bible readers were, writers were mere machines. This ignores the method of using human personality. How was the Bible inspired? It was inspired like Mary was inspired to bring forth Jesus. The Scripture says in 2 Timothy and in 2 Peter that holy men of God spoke as they were moved or breathed upon by the Word of God or by the Holy Spirit. Now how was Mary inspired to bring forth Jesus? The Scripture says that the Holy Spirit overshadowed her in such a way that that holy thing that was conceived in her was of God. And when Jesus was born, who did He look like? He looked like Mary. He was a Jew. He had the characteristics and features of a Jew, but He was all God, perfect, without sin. When Matthew wrote Matthew, and Luke wrote Luke, and Mark wrote Mark, and John wrote John, what came out sounded like Matthew, sounded like Mark, sounded like Luke, sounded like John. They're all different. But in such a way were they overshadowed by the Holy Spirit that what they said sounded like them, but the word they spoke was exactly what God wanted spoken. It was God's word. Think of the truths of the Word of God. You don't find fairy stories in the Bible, you find truth. In Job chapter 26, verse 7, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. <laughs> you can't get more modern and scientific than that. Listen to this. In Deuteronomy, in a time when they never heard of worshiping the stars, and didn't have the horoscope that we have. Lest thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldst be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. A warning against worshiping the skies and the heavens. 
And in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, it is he who sitteth upon the circle of the earth. This was written in a time when they thought the earth was flat. And the Egyptians taught that it was held up on some kind of a big post sitting on the back of a big animal. And when the animal would shake, that was an earthquake. And the Word of God says, He hangs the earth on nothing. He sits on the circle of the earth. Where did these writers get that? They got it from God. The Word of God is trustworthy. The Word of God is reliable. Now, Jeremiah said, it's shut up in my bones, and I can't refrain. And when they tried to kill the Word of God and destroy it and burn it up, God said, Jeremiah, don't get all fluster-buttered. Don't get all upset. Don't have a nervous breakdown. Don't say, oh, what am I going to do? He said, just sit down there and write it again. I'll give it to you again. And that's the way the indestructible Word of God has come to us. Now, this Word has an application to all of our problems. We live in an age of problems. The Word of God points to Jesus. This is called the written Word. It points to the living Word. Now, you can't turn to page 350 in the Bible and find the answer to your problem. Oh, you may. There may be an answer. I've, I've known of people who say, well, I'll tell you, I have a problem. I'm going to open the Bible. I'm going to close my eyes and open the Bible and wherever it, I'll put my finger down here and that'll be my answer. The problem, you may find it says, Judas went out and hanged himself. Go do thou likewise. You can't really handle the Word of God like that. You might find an answer like that someday, but that's not the way to do it. The Word of God points to Jesus. It testifies to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't have an answer to your problem. He is the answer. And when you receive Him into your heart, and you begin to walk with Him and talk with Him and live with Him, and He abides in you and your, His words abide in you, and you abide in Him, and you ask what you will and it is done for you, then there's victory. And that's what the song means when it says there's victory in Jesus. In John chapter 5, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and giveth them life, even so the Son giveth life to whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father who hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. What are the problems you face today? What are the perplexities that have come to your mind and your heart and your life? Somebody says, is there any word from the Lord? Does God have any answer to all the perplexing things that face my life? What about depression? Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What about discouragement? Jesus said, I'll walk with you through the valley. What about home problems? When somebody that's closer to you 
that anyone on this earth determines that he can't live with you any longer or she can't live with you any longer. And you feel shaken inside. And those vows that you had committed and pledged all go awry. And all those beautiful plans that you had made for an entire lifetime are placed over on the scrap heap. What do you do then? Look up. Look to Jesus. Just tell him about it. No one understands like Jesus. Now you can get bitter. You can withdraw. You can get so defeated that you go commit suicide. You can take out on God and shake your fist in God's face and say, God, if you allowed that to happen to me, I'll tell you, I'll leave you out. And you go down a trail to defeat. Or you can come to Jesus and ask him to pick up the broken pieces and help you put it all back together. Jeremiah spoke of going down to the potter's house. And he said, I am the potter, you're the clay. Can I not do with you as I will? Would you not yield yourself to me in such a way that I can put back together and make something beautiful out of your life and fashion it on my wheels? Oh, there's a wonderful truth in that passage, the wheels of God. Sometimes they hurt. Sometimes when those wheels are fashioning some beautiful piece of pottery, it rubs the pottery. It hurts. And sometimes there has to be the, you just have to take it and mold it all up and mix it all up again and then start over again. And God has to do that with our lives. Will you let him? Don't go away from him. Run to him. For his word is the answer. And what about when you find yourself lonely, defeated, and you don't know what to do? Jesus is the answer there. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And what about guilt? What are we going to do with all the guilt that comes? Any thinking person that lives long enough is going to have some guilt. You're going to be aware of some sin in your life. Sometimes we can't face that. You read day by day in the paper of people who drown their guilt in drink. They end up in jail. Disorderly conduct. They mess their lives all up. Or they get an alcoholic problem so that they can't be lived with and they're not happy and nobody can live with them. All because deep down inside, left over from childhood or somewhere along teenage life or in adult life, they've tried to drown their problems or tried to escape their personality in some kind of a prop. 
And if we'll just go to Jesus and just own up to it and say, Lord, I'm guilty. Don't put your blame on somebody else. Don't blame it on your mother or your daddy. I know people today who go through life saying, well, if you just knew what I had to grow up with. I visited somebody the other day, so I'm never going to church. My mother made me go to church when I was little and all that kind of thing. Don't blame your adult frustrations on your childhood, on your mother and daddy. This isn't theological or scriptural, but it sure is true. Every tub has to sit on its own bottom. And every one of us has to give an account of himself to God. And you cannot blame the problems you have on somebody else. Take them unto yourself and then take them to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm guilty. <laughs> now, I know that I may not have had right circumstances when I was a child. I may have had all kinds of problems happen to me. But Lord, the reason I'm in this situation right now, I made some wrong decisions. I made some wrong choices. I got into some wrong things. And I want to just come to you and confess it all. And the Bible says, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of it. All of it. Every bit of it. God will help you. Now, in order to do that, you have to forgive people who have wronged you. That's another tenor of the Word of God. Jesus said, when you pray, if you remember that somebody has something against you, you forgive them. For if you forgive not men their trespasses against you, how will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses against him? And so there has to come a reckoning with God. That's what the Word teaches. And it's all summed up. Listen, you've heard it so many times that it becomes like a shibboleth to you. It's all summed up by letting Jesus Christ be your Lord. That's what the verse means when it says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, not just Savior, but Lord, and believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you do that? Digging out of your past, digging out of your trouble, digging out of your problems to the wonderful Word of God as it testifies to the living Word, Jesus, who died on a cross and was buried and three days later was raised from the grave and He's a living Savior today, able to save to the uttermost all who will come to God by Him. May we pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for the wonderful, indestructible Word of God and the way it points to Jesus, the Lamb of God. We pray that just now someone will turn the old things of his life over to Jesus and let Jesus become real and personal and precious. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Will you stand, please? We're going to sing God's invitation. And as we sing, this is the invitation for you. If you're here without Jesus, we ask you to come to Jesus and trust Him as your Savior and Lord. If you're already God's child, 
Would you let him have first place with you? Would you let him be Lord of your life? Don't relegate him to a back seat or a place in the trunk of your car or somewhere in the back room of your house. Invite him to the living room up there where the action is. Invite him to the driver's seat of your car so he can drive the car of your life. Let Jesus be Lord. And I would like to urge you today to determine in your heart that beginning today, you're going to honor his word more. Read it more. Believe it more. Heed it more. Follow it more. And let this wonderful word point you to Jesus, the Lamb of God. As we sing, is there somebody that ought to come today and confess Jesus as your Savior? Just trust him. If you're not sure how to be saved, we'd like to show you. We're saved by faith in the shed blood of Christ who was raised from the dead. Would you trust him? As we sing, who will come to do what God tells you to do? If your membership is in another church and God wants you here, you come while we begin to sing.